millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You are listening to Trumpet's Time by Mist Apex. I'm Matt Trumpets, and thanks for joining me. This week, I engage in a waffle cast with Summers. I wanted to call it Summers Time and the Living is Easy, but Spanners refuse, so the chat will have a definite tech bias nonetheless. However, these shows will be also a platform for me to engage in some more nuanced discussion of Formula One, where I can drill down into topics a little deeper without Spanners constantly yawning and looking at his watch. The man has the patience of a lonely mayfly. This series of shows has been directly funded by new Patreon support in the month of August. Spanners asked you, the audience, if you would like to fund dedicated Wafflecasts, and you responded on Patreon with an emphatic yes, for which I am usually grateful. I still need to remind you that Missed Apex is an independent F1 podcast hosted at MissedApexPodcast.com. This program is safe for work. We are keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. Right. On with the show. Today's guest, Matthew Sommerfeld, otherwise known as the Wizard of F1 Place. How's it going, Summers? It's going very well, Matt. And how's it going for you? Oh, you know, aside from the occasional hardware disaster, it's going quite well. Going quite well. I had a, a bit of a hardware failure right at the start of the show just to make things interesting. That would happen on a tech-focused show, wouldn't it? Yes, I know. If, if if this was really a waffle cast, I'd be showing you pictures of the guts of my piece of electronic equipment and asking for help with it. But I won't do that to our listeners. <laughs> so today we're getting together and we're going to talk about some stuff that's come out of the uh, Italian Grand Prix and some of the other techy kind of things that are happening, but also some of the regulatory things, stuff that we normally talk about after the show is over. And you mean when Spanners isn't frowning really aggressively at us? Oh, man. You know, I feel like I just want to say the word tires. Oh, that felt so good. 
<laughs> he really does hate those little black things. Yeah, yeah, but they really were very important in qualifying. And and so since the Italian Grand Prix just happened, uh, just, you know, I know for me, I have my general impressions of it. People probably read my article. They know what they are. But what did you take away from, from it? Um, well, you can never fail to be impressed by uh, Monza. It's one of the classic circuits. Um, but I did find that there was a lot of bad blood prior to the to the race from people talking about Parabolica again and the runoff down there. And that kind of put a sour taste in the mouth, I think, for, for some people. Um, but aside from that, I think, as I say, it's one of the classics and you can't fail to, to love that place, especially as there's a lot of the budget for, for F1 teams put into to that race from a development point of view. Okay, then. So explain a little bit more. What are people upset about with Parabolica? Is it just the acres of cement that you can now drive over without penalty? It would appear to be that way, yeah. It's just that people are looking at it and wanting gravel back. Um, and obviously, we have to remember that places like Monza have to fund these events with other events. So you have things like MotoGP running around uh, at Monza as well. So we have to be less critical, I think, about the way in which that uh, circuits have to adapt in order to survive. But I do think there might be some common ground needed in terms of maybe having lower grip um, and abrasive surface, perhaps. What's your thoughts on that, Matt? Well, yeah, I... Hmm. I like the gravel, um, and it was fun to see at other areas of the circuit when drivers got it wrong and they and they chunked into the gravel. It how it brought their times, it it raised their times, uh, made their lap times worse. But you're correct in that uh, the Formula One is not the only sport that runs there, and they need to set the circuit up so that they can make money. Because if they don't make money, no one can go racing there. And it seems like to me, this has been an ongoing issue for Formula One. They've been wanting to ditch gravel anyway. I remember you mentioning a while back, it was because it made modeling difficult uh, for for safety purposes when they try and model what the cars might do. And certainly uh, MotoGP doesn't really want gravel because it tends to flip riders and bikes over, which is a very bad thing for them. So it seems like if FIA was really smart, they would make common cause with MotoGP and look for a surface that was acceptable, but still punitive if you strayed out onto it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, they installed that curb uh, midway through uh, the event to, to try and deter drivers from heading out onto the the swathes of tarmac, um, as you put it. But um, yeah, it, it's a difficult topic, isn't it? And unfortunately, I think you'll never appease everybody. So even those that don't want gravel uh, or want gravel will will have a problem if something else is bought in and it doesn't quite fit their criteria. Um, prob- probably some of the uh, rose-tinted glasses problems, unfortunately, with, uh, with what happens within Formula One. Yeah, well, you're talking about the same type of people who want to go back to race cars that explode every time there's a fender meter? They're the ones, yeah. Yeah, I know the ones. Well, I know I said the word tires earlier, but it seemed like to me in watching qualifying that the that Q3 was all about tires and that the extra rain really demonstrated who was able to get temperature into their tires and who wasn't. 
Yeah, well, I tweeted through Q2 that we were going to see this sort of situation because there was that crossover where it looked as if the Inter might actually be the better tyre. Um, and and it wasn't. And that's primarily because a lot of the time is spent on, on the straights in Monza. So you're not actually generating heat into the tyre, you're actually cooling the tyre. So when you get to the braking zone or you get to the, the section where you're, you're, you're taking out a throttle, you're, you're effectively then going in with a cooler than what you'd actually want and in that respect then you're not actually getting the grip level that you'd require uh, going into the corner so yeah there's a really weird sort of scenario where the wet tyre shouldn't have been the right tyre but it actually was because it, it had a wider working range correct effectively yeah and it was all about how much uh, water was out on the track I think a lot of the teams thought that switching to the Inter would provide them with more grip and it simply didn't offer them more grip in the corners because they were losing so much temperature on the straights. Yeah, and and that actually even resulted in some uh, fairly last-minute pit stops that I know caught out uh, Jolian Palmer for sure, and I believe at least one other driver couldn't get the enters off and the wets back on in time to make a lap to get out of Q1. Yeah, I know, and it's such a, a sad situation for Jolian because he's had all of these sort of problems in the past, and it always seems to be the same drivers that in- inevitably get caught out. But if we go back to Silverstone, for argument's sake, let's have a look at what Fernando did when he crossed the line right on the on the buzzer um, and and popped it into P1 because he'd switched to the dry tyres, if I remember rightly. Um, you know, so it's all about the timing of these sort of things and and how that impacts on the tire temperatures really yeah yeah now of course the the story that that i really want to talk about is ferrari and this is because i actually tweeted out some stuff about what i thought was going on and why they were struggling so much and so i'm going to tell you what i thought and then you can tell me exactly how wrong i was does that sound like a fun game i thought you was always right matt uh, well, Spanners isn't here, so I can actually admit to occasionally not being perfect in that regard. Uh, Far away, then. Right. So I watched them, and, and I remember distinctly that their uh, free practice one times were way off Mercedes. Now, I, it's not unusual to see them slower than Mercedes, but they were scarily off them. And then I noticed in FP2, they were much, much closer, more about the, you know, the one tenth, two tenths, three tenths, you'd sort of expect them to be. But that in looking at the driver quotes for that day, they, they said that the handling of the car was terrible. And so what occurred to me at that point was that they'd shown up in FP1 with what they thought was a solution and it wasn't a solution. So they'd merely chunked massive bits of downforce off the car to be able to mostly keep up with their Mercedes. But that meant they were not able to keep up into the turns because they hadn't got the balance right. And then with FP3 being wet and qualifying being wet, pretty much the race was the first chance they had to try any of their changes in the real world. And they just simply weren't good enough. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I take away from Ferrari at Monza, and it's symptomatic symptomatic of what we saw in spa as well the characteristics of the wo8 actually suit those tracks whereas the sf70h is much more suitable to sort of the the tighter twistier tracks and that is predominantly to do with kinematics and wheelbase and the way that they generate tire temperatures um the amounts of downforce that can be generated in mid to high speed corners um so i think that the problem is is that everybody's expecting that 
both of those cars should be able to battle one another every circuit. And because the cars are so very different to one another, you are going to have this sort of back and forth for the entire season where one circuit will suit another one of the cars and one circuit won't. Um, there's obviously going to be some in-betweens where we do see a, a much tighter uh, battle between the four cars. But predominantly, I think it, it's going to be very much, dri- this championship is going to be very much driven by um, uh, circuit characteristics and the way that that suits the particular car. Right. Now, for, for Ferrari, obviously, have tried to marginalise those problems at Monza. Um, they actually went with a much lower downforce setting on their rear wing um, than we've seen them run for the rest of the season. Now, you'd expect that from any team because that's what you do at Monza. You just take downforce off because predominantly you're going to be in a situation where um, you want to reduce drag. And so Ferrari ran a very slender rear wing instead of the sort of spoon-shaped wing that we've seen other teams use this season when they want to reduce drag. Um, and they also took away the monkey seat. But obviously that has an effect on balance. And if you've suddenly taken away a, a heap of balance from the rear of the car, you have to try and take that from the front of the car because you, you want to balance it up, otherwise you end up with oversteer. And that is the exact comment that Raikkonen made during the race, is that he was struggling for balance. So for me, it was a bit of an issue in terms of, as you say, they lost time throughout free practice and they didn't have time to accurately set up the car. Um, but I think it was also a point that, you know, this circuit didn't actually play to the strengths of Ferrari and you have to take that into account as well. Yeah, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a one-off aero solution for all of the teams, similar to the Monaco setup. Yeah, it's what we call a Monza special. Um, you, you only see these wings at Monza. Uh, you very rarely see them run anywhere else. You know, the only team that I could say ran anything close to a, a specification that we've already seen this season was Mercedes. And they ran a very similar wing angle to what we already saw them use in Spa and in Baku. Whereas everybody else was running what I would term to be an actual Monza special wing. Um, so, you know, and I think that also goes back to the the specification upgrade of the power unit that Mercedes took in Spa, um, they're able to run their power unit much harder in the early stages of its life. Um, and that's where perhaps Ferrari were caught out as well because they still have one to run in the future. Yes, and as your article aptly pointed out, they've also got that engine able to run and burn extra oil in the combustion chamber, which gives them a big advantage. And it's an advantage they can use to a certain extent, in the race as well as in qualifying. Yeah, I've actually had information back from Mercedes, though, that they're they're not actually running at the upper limit and they're staying within the 0.9 litres per 100 kilometres. So, you know, but it it does allow them to still run it harder um, for longer just because it's a new engine. It's like anything, when we buy a new car um, ourselves and we go out and we use it it's not going to operate at the same level when you've done 80,000 kilometers um, you know and it's had an oil change and it's had a cam belt change it, it, it's that sort of thing you know these engines and power units do degrade over time yeah as all engines do I remember Mark Hughes mentioning in his uh, write-up in Motorsport magazine that Ferrari was actually losing time in the corners to Mercedes And that's why I really think this is a very, very much one-off. And it seems like the power of the Mercedes engine is such, even though Ferrari's clearly made a lot of strides, 
they can basically, they don't even need to run that special of a Monza package because the engine just has that much more power. It's that much more efficient. Yeah, and it also goes back to what we were talking about at the start of the season. Mercedes have really got on top of their kinematic side of things now in terms of the the loss that they had at the start of the season with the hydraulic suspension that ironically, obviously, Ferrari had removed from the cars via the FIA. So, you know, I think Mercedes' package is really starting to come into its own and Ferrari are, are attempting to play catch-up. But we have to remember that in both the hybrid era and in terms of aero, Ferrari have been a, a long way off where Mercedes have been for quite some time. So to get where they've got to in one season is a huge achievement, I think, personally. But, you know, it would be nice to see them battle it out. Yeah, and but I think they will. I, I think you, you know, Singapore has got to be the polar opposite to Monza in terms of setup. And you just have to say that even if you look at Spa, which, again, is going to suit the Mercedes more just because of the nature of the higher speed, Ferrari were much more competitive there. It wasn't it wasn't a race where you knew after the first 10 laps that it was basically done for the top two positions. Yeah, and I think you also have to throw Red Bull into the mix when we're talking about Singapore. Um, you know, a, a street circuit, high downforce, um, and although they have that small deficit in terms of the power unit, we all know that the chassis is coming on leaps and bounds. And as we saw in Monza with Daniel Ricciardo and Verstappen to a lesser extent, um, you know, that they are making significant strides. You know, they're qualifying in P2 and 3 effectively for, for Monza, which should realistically be unheard of. Yeah, and but we wouldn't have really seen that if it hadn't been wet, though. No, I, I, yeah, it, the wet did play into that because obviously you, you have that, that issue with the, the tyres and the way that they, they operate. Um, but look at Williams, you know, where did they come from? Um, you know, they're, they're, I think they're just as amazed as everybody else as what actually happened at, at this Grand Prix. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a strange one in terms of the way that it flips the grid around when you have these kind of wet weather conditions. Yeah, but Williams actually seemed to hold up fairly well throughout the race, too. They they were able to run at or maybe even faster than the Force Indias, which isn't what you'd expect. Is it just this happens to be the one race that suits the car that Williams has right now? I think there's a bit of that. There's a bit of the fact that um, both Massa and Stroll actually ran different rear wing setups, so... Uh, Stroll ran what was called the, Mo- the Monza Special. He had a very low downforce rear wing, and he's perhaps why he outqualified Massa. Perhaps Massa went in search of more balance, but perhaps he was also fearful of what might happen with the weather as well. So decided to to crank back, knowing that you know the wily older fox um, might catch the the younger turtle at uh, at the first corner. Um, but you know, it's it, it was a coup for Williams in terms of the way that they. They, they performed in Italy. Um, in terms of the way that they performed against Force India, I think we also have to remember that, again, we're talking about the way in which the, the power units are, are longevity works because we're we not to believe that Williams turned theirs down in Spa and perhaps they turned them up in Monza. So did they sacrifice Spa for Monza? That's one thing that obviously we won't understand or know from the team, but it is something that you, you can think about. Well, that's an interesting point and one that I'll be honest, I hadn't really considered. Um, 
So what else? What else do we want to know technically from Monza and, and what's been happening in the last couple of races? What should we be looking out for? I know that Ferrari's brand new power unit, which was supposed to be at Monza, didn't show up. Yeah, and again, I think this falls back on the oil burning story that, that came about over the last few races because in Baku, uh, Ferrari had a few of their toys taken away from them. So not only from an aerodynamic perspective, I talked to you about this in a post show before, and obviously as we're on a waffle cast, um, they had uh, a fluidic switch inside their blown axle. Um, so when they're in, you know, the 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 blown axle would work when it when they wanted it to and it would turn off when they didn't uh, which is quite an interesting concept but has subsequently been disallowed by the FIA by all accounts they also had the scythe on the side of the floor which everybody was moaning about which would vibrate violently during the 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 course of a lap that was removed as well and is now held by a metal stay but also they had a secondary oil tank removed from the Ferrari because they were burning two types of oil um and obviously the second more special type of oil may have given more performance advantages um towards the power unit perhaps a little bit of performance boost um under certain circumstances so has that then delayed the the introduction of their new power unit because that toy's been taken away from them and their development lead time has changed i think that's what we might be looking at in terms of when ferrari are going to deploy their their new power unit Excellent. Although I still, for one, am looking forward to seeing it just based on the description of it I've heard thus far. Why is that? What have you heard, Matt? About the 3D printing and the weight savings and the different materials. I mean, this is this is kind of the next step for Formula One. I mean, they're starting to get to a point where they could just set up a 3D printer out the back and start making brand new parts for the car. Yeah, well, small lead time parts have been made for a long time in the pit lane. It's something that obviously isn't covered uh, dramatically. But you know, uh, say uh, a f- the front of a f- the f- in front of the rear tire on a floor, there's the deck area where you have a lot of these slots. Um, those areas tend to be three D printed. Um, so you, they might turn up at a at a race um, a few weeks after they've already been to one, cut out a section, and and place put. A, put a new one in place so it's it is something that's that's not that's been around in the sport for a very long time because it helps with lead times but the the thing that you're mentioning in terms of the power unit is, is an interesting field because it allows mixable um properties in terms of the the type of alloys etc that we're talking about to be making these things and also it's unmanufacturable parts that's the thing about 3d printing you know these are parts that cannot be made in any other way um so we're probably looking at a, a, the piston crown is going to be a very different design in the new uh ferrari power unit and the way that that crown interacts with um the double hook injector that ferrari use might obviously heed some extra performance so yeah it is an interesting time but unfortunately it's also something that we perhaps won't ever see you know these are items that you never get the opportunity to get your hands on um, unless you go to say a a manor fire sale um, and get your hands on some of the bits because the the team's gone into liquidation Yes, and we've seen a few of those uh, wandering about from from Manor recently, some setup sheets and stuff like that. It was very fun to look at. But I would think that 3D printing would be one of those rare areas that would have real crossover for manufacturers as well. 
and it strikes me as is going to be an odd comparison to make, but frankly, we're already stealing a lot of diesel technology anyway, that the because you can now have parts that you cannot manufacture, but you can print. And I think the Mercedes exhaust is a great example of that. Just like when computer modeling finally enabled uh, diesel technicians to start modeling different shaped combustion chambers, you saw a huge jump in the power and efficiency of diesel. As these 3D techniques are going to be applicable to more and more of the whole engines, who knows what kind of designs we're going to wind up with from an efficiency and power point of view, because you're literally going to be able to make things that people could never imagine because it couldn't be made before with the techniques that existed. Yeah, t- totally agree. It's a, it's a fascinating field um, and something that obviously Formula One is at the cutting edge. So naturally that will bleed into everyday life at some point. Um, but at this stage, it will be a case of um, the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari cutting their teeth on on this sort of technology and and learning to use it um, at a high end performance scale before it ends up in in the road cars of the future. Let's say, yeah. Well, it's it's going to be I think one of the more exciting areas, as you said, for us to to look forward to. But I'm just fascinated with it, and it's going to be a shame. And this is the kind of the shame of Formula One is a lot of times the most interesting stuff is the stuff that we only hear about. And never really get to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, a certain Mr. Ross Braun might be able to solve that problem um, in the future. I don't believe it's something that he'll be able to, to fix overnight. It might be something that we're looking at for 2021. Um, certainly, I think there needs to be more access in terms of the technology and the way that people perceive the sport. And I think that's been a massive failing in this hybrid era is the misunderstanding of the technology um, and the way that it it helps the performance of, of these machines. Yes, it has its fragilities and yes, it has its problems in terms of um, providing that performance over a, a, a period of time like we've seen with Honda, but it is the future um and formula one has already has always been at the future and i don't think that that, that's something that it should idly dismiss yeah and we've seen patty lowe we've seen james key james allison all at various pressers talking about these engines and how amazing they are from an efficiency point of view i mean they're they're north of 50 percent efficiency which you know i remember the the numbers are like 35 percent if you just take a bog standard ice, 35% is about the best you're going to get. They're north of 50% now. It's staggering what they've been able to achieve. And they really are on the edge, especially given the regulations. And with regards to being able to see more of it and transparency, can I can I get a glimmer that you're suggesting that forcing manufacturers to be open about their designs will be a major impact on overall cost? And I, I th- Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's there's more to be had from allowing each other to know exactly what you're doing. There, there's so much secrecy within the world of Formula One um, that I think some transparency would help um, to to reduce some costs. Because you know we've had these fiascos like mass dampers in the past. We've had uh, the F duct, which took time for teams to understand actually how it was operating before they could actually make their own versions of it. You know, so. It, if there were some transparency, um, I believe NASCAR do a similar thing where there's an open pit lane as such and, you know, that that 
the teams can actually go and look at other teams' designs. Now, I know the teams have their own spies out there with the cameras, etc. but there is still a learning curve behind these things, and there's always those things that take time and effort to understand. So, yeah, I think over time it might be a good idea for, for Ross to, to work on that with, with a FOM. Yeah, and we could also just point to it making the whole season more competitive as well because if it takes you half a season to figure out what someone has done from a development point of view, you're not going to catch them till next year. On the other hand, if you can see at event number one what they've done, well, then by race five or six, you're chasing their solution and the competition will be that much better as a result. Yeah, but we have we have also seen in the past um, some gaming of that system, let's say, as well, where teams will start using something in free practice one or free practice two just to say, oh, let's toy around with the, the opposition. Um, let, let's show them something that might not actually work um, and leave the other teams down a, a development path that, you know, waste their time as well. Um, so, yeah, the, it's an interesting thing in terms of development. Um but as I say, I think I think Ross is the perfect person to to try and get on board with with dealing with that type of situation. Yes. Well, and and speaking of which, he already seems to be partially dealing with another situation, one that I've conveniently nicknamed Mctoral Hondo and No. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's uh, a bit of a mouthful. I'm glad you've not had a drink this afternoon, Matt. <laughs> well, not much of one at any rate. Um, but this this is the thing. We are literally awaiting word as to what McLaren are planning to do about their Honda engine. And although I thought a knife had been firmly stuck in it, suddenly the Toro Rosso deal was seemed to be back on the table. And uh, just just do you do you have that vague outlines of what that swap is all about? I mean, I know what I've read, but well, I don't think the the uh, Toro Rosso deal ever came off the table. Um, and this is all part of the mechanism of Sauber walking away from the Honda deal in the first place, because Hon- uh, the deal with Sauber was really a parachute for for McLaren, in as much as that it gave them an escape route if they could find another power unit. Um, but it also meant that if they couldn't, there was a secondary development team which could help to speed up the process of improving the Honda power unit. So the, the biggest problem that McLaren have had is the walkaway by Sauber, which has obviously led to the, the, the demise of Manisha Kaltenborn at Sauber as well, um, along with several other members of staff in, in the background. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a case of Zach clearly has been knocking on every door possible since he's been at McLaren to try to deal with the commercial issue that Honda are causing McLaren. Um, you know, McLaren are one of the titans of the sport and they shouldn't be in the position that they are, but they found themselves in this position and now need to box their way out of the corner. Um, I think there's lots of moving parts to, to the whole deal and it really hinges on Honda take uh, Honda taking a deal with Toro Rosso in terms of financial cost um, to which you may even lead to to the the purchase of their team um, you know that could be another alternative that Honda actually come back as a manufacturer um, they've been there before um, is it an option who knows it, it, you know as I say so there's a lot of moving parts and the other problem that you have is uh, that um, the gearbox is a long lead part so if 
McLaren suddenly want to jump ship now, they have to either start from scratch building a, a gearbox that is going to suit the Renault, along with all the cooling ancillaries, um, the placement of you know these coolers, radiators, etc., within the the next year's car, um, or they have to purchase something from Red Bull Technology, who are currently running a Renault. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a it's a bit of a debacle um in my opinion and i think it's all a bit down to the knuckle in terms of lead times but that clearly the mclaren want out of the honda deal um otherwise you wouldn't be seeing all of these talks happening in 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 open public yeah and now this is interesting because you're talking about the commercial damage to mclaren from honda but we also heard this weekend about honda making the exact same complaint regarding mclaren and i have to say that a double non-finish was not a good thing for McLaren, but one of the two cars didn't finish because they were having trouble with the transmission, which is not something that Honda builds. And I'd be curious to go back through the season. And I'm also, frankly, I'm looking at Renault's reliability this season. And it, do, it does seem sort of like out of the frying pan and into the fire. Should McLaren make this switch? And, you know, and then there's the whole deal with Renault wanting, apparently wanting signs as part of it, which means that there's extra negotiations about that as well. But who do you think is really going to be taking the biggest risk here? I think Toro Rosso wins no matter what at this point, because I think there might be more upside to the Honda engine short term than the Renault engine. And if McLaren continue to have the same reliability with a different engine that's only 15 horsepower stronger... And why? What's the point? Well, I, I personally think that Renault are taking the biggest gamble if this all unfolds, because what we have to remember is is that they're a manufacturer, they're a works team, and they now supply that they'd now be in a position of supplying Red Bull Racing and McLaren, who are potentially both will finish ahead of them in the constructors' title and take prize money away from the from them as a constructor as well. So you you're risking the opportunity of better development through McLaren and supplying them as a customer of actually allowing them to beat you in the championship. So it's a, it's a very muddy gray area because you, you're kind of putting yourself in, in a corner if you're Renault. And the other person that is putting themselves in a corner is Alonso because at the end of the day, he always makes the wrong move. So whatever happens here, the guarantee will be that Fernando Alonso has made the wrong decision. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but there was always there's an episode where George did the opposite of what he normally did, and his life just became a miraculous success. And I feel like were I to manage Alonzo, I would just ask him what he wanted and then tell him to do the other thing instead, and it would have all gone better for him. Yeah, un- unfortunately, he's always been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and, you know, a talent of his caliber is completely wasted um, when he when he's trolling around in, in a car that cannot get him to the finish of a race on, on most circumstances. Um, and you can understand why he wants to retire a car at a place like Spa, um, because he's sick to death of driving uh, uh, driving the car around in circles and, and not actually achieving anything, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I'm not even sure it's achieving anything, but literally he is incapable of racing due to the particular characteristics of the car he's driving even though he said complimentary things about the latest Honda power unit, which I think was 3.7, he said it was a big improvement. He's not racing with that yet. 
and and yeah, I I, I get that it, it can be uh, uh, tiresome at best. But he had he had a actual problems this race, to be clear. Yeah, and going back to to Honda, I would personally say that Honda are getting places, and this is the other problem that McLaren have because they're working themselves into a position why, where, like Red Bull did with Renault a few seasons back, where they can't actually work together anymore because they're destroying the relationship with one another. Um, and and Honda are going to get there in a moment. It, it's it's starting to come to fruition, and they're just throwing engines at things because they want time out on track. So they're they're spending a huge amount of time and money building power units that are of more performance to try to understand what to do for next season. Um, And and for me, if I were Toro Rosso, I'd I'd be taking the deal. I'd be taking the money and I'd be taking the Honda power unit because, as you say, in the short term, it might actually be a better solution than the Renault. Yeah, and especially if uh, we know that Mario Illion is involved with him and he's a Red Bull favourite. And if Red Bull get involved and Red Bull and Toro Rosso run Honda units and they are the Honda manufacturer uh, works team, as, as, it, as it would turn out, then, then that, would, that would be quite a splendid thing. Although nobody knows yet what's coming for 2021. So, so again, we're only talking a couple of years. The risk reward for Toro Rosso seems fantastic. Yeah, and as you say, you know the the relationship that can be garnered from having the Honda power unit through through Toro Rosso could bleed into Red Bull taking that power unit. Oh, and have a look who that is their fuel supplier. Let's go around the merry-go-round and see who used to be at McLaren as their fuel supplier. So you know that there are links within everything that goes on in Formula One, and it is a possibility that we might see a Honda power unit in the Red Bull in the future if the whole mechanism falls into place. No, oh, that would be, that would be incredibly exciting. I would feel bad for Zach Brown though, because he really inherited uh, Ron Dennis mess. And what surprises me when he talks about it, when I see everybody on TV talk about it, and, and maybe this is just me being a Honda apologist. Cause once upon a time I owned a Honda, it was not the worst car I ever drove by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, that would be a Chrysler 200, if you were curious. What surprises me is essentially this is a reboot. This is this is a brand new. It's like Honda might as well have entered Formula One this year with this engine. I don't look at the progress they've made because the regulations changed significantly that allowed them to come in with a new design. The initial design, the first two years, I'm going to blame that all on McLaren and the FIA because they were forced to choose and be stuck with a design that they couldn't fix in the way that they knew they needed to about halfway through the first season. Totally. You know, the size of that turbo that was installed in in between the V was so tiny compared to what was actually needed. And there just wasn't harvesting enough energy. And that was predominantly their, their issue through that year. Obviously, they've had several other issues in terms of understanding lean burn combustion technology, which is primarily where Mercedes and then following that Ferrari have made such huge leaps. But you do have to blame the the homologation process that has effectively been broken. You know, at the end of the day, anybody could just rock up to a weekend now and run a brand new power unit and all they're going to do is start at the back of the grid. Well, qualifying as we've seen in Spa, uh, sorry, in, in Monza, doesn't really mean anything when all these penalties start to play out. It's like having a reverse grid. So if I were Red Bull, at certain tracks, I think I'd just be taking a new Renault power unit um, and, and running the extra power performance you can get from a brand new one. 
and running through the field. Yeah, and and why not? Because they have enough to be able to finish uh, fifth and sixth, assuming a, a perfect score by Mercedes and, and Ferrari from the back. So there's no real downside to it. And the upside is they get new power units and Renault gets more data and they can they can apply modifications and upgrades whenever they feel like it, which is an excellent, excellent uh, segue to our next topic, which is what do we do about these grid penalties? And this is this is it all. I saw Jean-Ta being interviewed on Sky. Don't ask me how, but I did. And he flat out said the only reason for these grid penalties is for cost control. And I just... I don't see it. These engines are expensive. When they explode, you have to build new ones anyway. How how is this really holding down costs when you have engines that are this persnickety? Because it's important to remember too, uh, as spanners would be banging the drums for right now, that engineering reliability like that is also not a cheap thing to do. I, I suspect there's probably a magic number. The magic number with 20 races is probably around five, five and a half. More than that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And you're getting an advantage by introducing extra units. And less than that, it's just going to cost more and more and more money. And next year, we have more races and we're down to three. Do you think that's going to really stand once the strategy group gets done? And if it does, how is this really saving money? Because they're using the same amount, if not more power units. Well, just to clarify, they won't switch down to three if we go over 20 races. Um, they'll go back up to four. Uh, there's uh, something written in the regulations about the amount of races that you need to be able to run to to stay at, at, at the lower limit. So I think we'll be up to we'll still be on four, but we should, as you say, be down to three. Um, and the problem that we've realistically got is that when the power unit uh, power units were signed off originally for 2013, because everybody forgets this. 2013 was supposed to be the the start of the hybrid era and it was pushed back a year because certain manufacturers weren't ready. Um, So 
that has an implication on the the both the costs of R and D, um, and also the the length of the regulation gestation. So that you know the teams like uh, sorry manufacturers like Mercedes, Ferrari, and Renault went about their their development in very different ways. Um, Mercedes spent a big big bulk of their their uh, research and development costs at the very early stages of these these regulations and they've yeah. since been crawling out much smaller developments but gaining still quite rapidly whereas the likes of ferrari and renault kind of didn't spend enough to start with um, and then it comes down to how much they're charging their customers you know that that's another issue that has now had to be addressed because it had gotten out of control Apparently, the Renault power unit was costing $21 million a season for the likes of Red Bull, which is a staggering amount of money. Um, but again, you know, it, it's, is it worth it? You know, and we've talked about less complex units coming in for 2021. Um, and we're talking about the amount of penalties that are happening at races like we've just seen in Italy there has to be some common ground there has to be a middle ground and we have to find that because there's still four years to go on these regulations effectively um yeah four 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 years to go so we have to find something and I believe Ross is looking into that situation right now and they're they're going to try and uh, alleviate the problem for next season right well with the penalties basically being ah you're kicked to the back of the grid with the new power unit but also, and this has always been something that bothers me, unlike almost everything else on the car, I mean, the power unit, you, as a team, you're just at the mercy of your manufacturer. And it does seem like they're getting penalized for something that is almost entirely, even gearboxes, I understand. Like, you didn't build the gearbox strong enough, you abuse the gearbox, then you pay the penalty, fair enough. But here, you're just buying you know, out of a box, an engine. And if it doesn't work, that's your fault. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think to me, the economics of it is what, what I don't understand is if you're, if you're supposed to supply four engines and you wind up having to supply nine, which means you probably built more than that to get through a season. Well, how, even at $20 million, how are you making any kind of a profit and how can that be worth it? Well, it's not worth it. It's all about commercial exposure at the end of the day, isn't it? That's what these manufacturers are in the sport for. It's essentially a sponsorship activation. They're they're using it as a way of commercialising their their side of uh, things from outside interest. But for me, I personally feel that there should be a third championship. You know, we've got the drivers and we've got the constructors championship. And I personally think that there should be a a championship for uh, the engine manufacturers. And yes, you would need to have some kind of multiplier to work work these things out. But at least then you can give the penalties to just the engine manufacturer. So if Honda starts blowing up all these power units, Fernando Alonso isn't going to suffer the grid penalty, but the engine manufacturer will take a huge hit in terms of the points that they will lose. And I know there's, you're going to get a, a gaming of the system, let's say, um, and it needs to be looked at properly. But I think that that might be a, 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 an option for, for the sport going forward because then it also entices manufacturers to be involved in the sport. You know, we've had 
Porsche announced today that they may look at 2021 as an entrance point to the sport. And I think for them to come in as just a manufacturer, they need something to allow them to to market themselves rather than just being associated to a team as well. Yeah, and and that actually that that has got to be one of the most sensible suggestions I think I've seen on the internet or heard or read recently to make the engines an entirely separate championship because because it does seem more fair. But I'm still concerned at the, at the cost of these engines. I know our our good friend Vortex is always banging on about wanting to get independent manufacturers involved. But there's no way you can make money off of this. You're going to lose the money no matter what you do. And and even even to a certain extent, simplified engines, it's really hard for me to see anyone other than uh, an existing manufacturer wanting to get directly involved. I could see like tag, you know, sponsors wanting to brand and being allowed to deviate from a standard design to a certain extent. But to build it from the ground up, I think the engines have just gotten too complicated and the research involved is just is just too high to overcome as a barrier to entry. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we've seen this in WEC with LMP1 projects, you know, the, the amount of teams that are now folded from that. And we're looking at just an in, independent field effectively for, for 2018 if, if Toyota pull the plug as well. Well, why won't they? They've got nobody to race against. Um, so so it really, apart from saying we're going to rock up to every event and win it, um, what does that say about them as a brand? Um, you know, and I think that's the problem with the the monetary element of the of the the sport in terms of connecting it to the the engines and the way in which they're purchased from from the manufacturers. So, yeah, for me, as I say, I'd, I'd have a separate uh, championship uh, for for the engine manufacturers, and to me, that then gives them some pleasure in being involved in the sport as well, and it may entice the likes of Porsche along when the simplification happens, but. I also think if we're going to have a simplification, then it must be something without the hybrid element. And I'm a big fan of the hybrid element, but I do feel from a cost perspective, you have to be at one end of the scale or entirely the other end of the scale to try and involve the the the, the smaller niche manufacturers like your Cosworths and, and Illions to come into the sport. Yeah, well, I, I remember, um, I want to say, was it uh, Beatable or, or maybe Cyril? Um, at a press conference saying that any upgrade that didn't demonstrate a certain level of cost efficiency, like dollars per point of downforce, for example, should simply be disallowed. is is simply a way of getting everyone to focus on clever, clever solutions to problem, i.e. spending $10 million to gain a hundredth is not worth it. Spending $5 million to gain a tenth, maybe that's worth it. And he proposed like just a flat out measure of whether or not development would be allowed back during the great uh, cost debates of the 2014s and 15s. And it, it seems to me that from an engine point of view, what you're looking at is I think the ERS H is utterly revolutionary and has been a big boost. But the fact of the matter is, is the parameters under which it has to operate make it very prone to failure and make it incredibly expensive and difficult to get working properly in all circumstances. And I, you could see that right away being targeted for just being gone and going back to a simpler K solution for your ERS. 
plus uh, uh, plus the twin turbo V6, or you know maybe even go to an i4, which is what Renault originally wanted. But I feel that in a lot of ways the electric petroleum hybrid is sort of peaked in terms of its marketability. You got the Prius, you got the Bull, you got all these, and what manufacturers are doing now that the diesel scandal has happened is they seem to be really focusing on full electric vehicles, which is the province of Formula E. And what strikes me is Toyota is doing a lot of development and research now with hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cells. And I'm wondering if we could see a five or six year ERS K and ICE with a plan to move towards hydrogen sometime through the decade, because that seems to be the only other realistic alternative to basically full electric vehicles in the long term. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a, that's what Ross is all about, though, is long-term goals. You know, he's not for sticking plasters over, over problems. He doesn't like uh, a short-term solution. So we're looking at three, five, and 10-year solutions. And yes, I think in a decade's time, we need to be looking at what that, that solution is going to be right now, but not have it set down in stone because it is a movable target so as you say i think in the interim period we need a a much simpler engine rather than a power unit um perhaps a trip back to a smaller mg uk or curs as as it was called before um perhaps as a a a power boost like it used to be with curs um because the problem that you have with the, the the mg uk without the mg uh is that you're going to increase the battery capacity in order to make things work because of the way that the MGUH recovers energy from the turbo as it's spooling. It works all over the, all over the place. Um, so, and that feeds energy directly to the MGUK. It misses out the battery. Um, it doesn't have to store that energy. And this is one of the things that is almost forgotten by the broadcasters and most of the media in the way in which these hybrids are promoted is the, the technology, um, the, the programming of these systems that go into creating the mapping that deals with those those issues, sort of like the algorithm that problem that we saw Honda have at Spa, you know. So yeah, we we need a simplification, but I'm also a fan of the complication of what we have now. So it's a very difficult topic to talk about um, because you feel like you're almost taking a step back and. Should Formula One take a step back? That is always my question. Yeah. Unfortunately, you raise very good points. Could it be a thing where maybe a spec MGUH would be the solution that could plug into any manufacturer's engine? I I see actually a point whereby we could run a twin turbo setup with a standardized MGUH. You know, Mercedes being the leading authority on that side of things, let them uh, work on a standardized MGUH and let's get rid of the battery entirely. It's 45 kilograms of the car and whatever energy you can make up whilst you're on the MGUK or you're recovering via that both MGUHs and you share them symbiotically through through those systems. It would It would be quite a complex system, but it would get rid of some of the weight, which is, as we know, an enemy of this particular formula at the moment as well. Yeah, and it, it, basically, the less you weigh for any given amount of power, the faster the cars are and the better they handle. So lighter is always going to be better when it comes to things like Formula One. I just, oh, man, it makes my brain hurt to try and solve some of these problems. 
you mentioned the um, the H, and this was a question. I, I'm curious if in any of your talkings with the team, have you ever discussed with them what they would do if they weren't restricted uh, in terms of the amount of energy per lap they were allowed to recover? Yeah, it, it's a difficult situation because you would en- inevitably end up with D rates uh, because you would inevitably push in certain areas the driver is essentially in control in terms of the 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 electrical loop because he's requesting more energy so at certain points he's going to run out of energy which is what we saw alonso do when he derated in that qualifying session because he do, you know the algorithm couldn't catch up with what what he was trying to do so it is a complex thing but from the engineers i've talked to they just want free reign they want to get rid of the the, the fuel flow rate um it, even if they just did it in qualifying, you know, these guys want to, to see what the, the, these things can actually achieve when they're unleashed. Um, can you imagine an MG UK that can provide 320 horsepower rather than 160 for argument's sake? You know, it changes the landscape of the vehicles. And unfortunately, what I find is that we're in a situation where we don't have enough horsepower to make the cars undrivable. And that's where we should be at. For me, for the amount of weight that they currently have within these cars, we need about 1,200 horsepower, and we're way short of that. So, you know, we need to perhaps readdress that situation. Um, and I think the engineers are, are, are really wanting that as well. Well, then it's a good thing that Braun is an engineer, and we might actually get a proper response to that. Do you know, um, or, or, or have you ever discovered initially why? that was limited why the amount you could recover was limited per lap it's all to do with energy matrix so it's to do with how much fuel you can use um and they take a given lap around a specific track and they work out exactly what can be used but it's it's basically a tenfold gain from what we had from um curs so curs was a 400 kilojoule um, storage or usage for a lap from the from the battery, whereas now we have four megajoules. Um, so it's all about limitations of what the batteries can do as well, which again is a, an area in which that I always frown upon because if anywhere the technology we want to improve in terms of the automotive industry is battery capacity and the way in which batteries are used. So for me, it's a no-brainer. You open up the battery specification and you allow them to do what they want to do. Give them more carte blanche. It, 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 it just... It's a very frustrating side of things in in the way in which Formula One approached it. Um, I can understand it's a very complex scenario. We have lots of working machines because that's what they are. These uh, MG UKs, MG UHs, it's a machine that has to operate almost independently of one another whilst also working together. Um, But I just find that perhaps the shackle should be taken off over a sustained period of time. And that may have helped. And it was talked about the fuel flow limit was supposed to come down over a period of time, but it's actually gone up. So, you know, this is the political side of the sport, isn't it? In in, in as which as way where, where everybody wants to argue their case. Um, and I think Red Bull wins out in some of those scenarios. Yeah, no, they do. And I'll admit, even occasionally, sometimes it's probably for the best of the sport that they do. I was never understanding entirely of the fuel flow limit um, other than I, I know that it was put forward as kind of a safety concern as such. But if you put 100, 110 kilograms of fuel into the tank and you have to finish the whole race with it, well, then you've achieved your average efficiency. 
insisting on an average efficiency per tenth or half a second or whatever the measure currently is always seemed a bit nuts to me, to be honest. Yeah, and that's where Red Bull really had a problem with the regulations. And it's where the oil burn situation could effectively be a a big misnomer because it's allowing them to cheat the fuel flow limit. Uh, because they're they're entering more fuel into the combustion chamber effectively so the fuel flow limit is is irrelevant at that point because they're combusting more fuel um at a at a different burn rate so yeah a complex scenario um yeah, i was going to say don't forget that th- when they had to respecify the uh, lack of flexibility of materials on the other side of the fuel rail because they would pouch up on the other side of the fuel rail and then they could demand extra fuel and get it when the when the driver put the pedal all the way down yeah again it's just a, a comp the sport is out there um to be to be gamed the rules are put in place and and the teams are there to try to beat the rules at the end of the day and kudos to anybody who works within the sport and knows how to beat rules because that's that's the game you know and that's why teams are successful because they understand how to beat the rules we've been seeing this for decades it's nothing new it's just more technologically advanced than it used to be yeah yeah it is and it's going to go on it's going to go on this way no matter who changes what and no matter how fair the sport actually becomes yeah and even if we went back to a let's say a, a basic v6 twin turbo engine um well does anybody say blown diffuser um, because you know that that potentially puts it puts that back on the table as well. Um, th- there's lots to be talked about for the future in in Formula One, um, and certainly in terms of the the next power unit um, or engine. Um, yeah, it's it's just a fascinating field. Yeah, it is indeed fascinating. Now I, I know we talked about qualifying. I know we've talked about it, but did you have any opinion? Um, again, since we're talking regulations a little bit about how they currently test the track uh, when there's periods of water like we saw in Monza. There was a lot of carping on television about the intervals at which they sent out the safety car. And I saw more than a little bit of blame uh, tossed at uh, Romain Grosjean for his crash. And I will admit to possibly being amongst those who thought, well, perhaps you shouldn't have stepped on the throttle once you started aquaplaning because we saw a lot of other drivers get get to there so technically what was happening there and 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 what should we be looking at going forward well firstly i can't really put blame on a on a driver from formula one these these are drivers that are beyond the skill set of anybody that we we know to hand you know they're they're amazing drivers and yes they occasionally make mistakes but that's why they're human um so yeah, perhaps he shouldn't have, have popped his foot on the throttle again after the aquaplaning, but you're not going to then just th- float on down to turn one and sink it in there. Um, you've just lost a, a heap of lap time. So it's all about gaining lap time, isn't it? The problem, the biggest problem with that qualifying session was the new tarmac that had been laid on the on the pitch straight because it just wasn't, the, the water wasn't draining away or seeping into the surface of the track the way that it was around the rest of the track. So you were ending up with sort of rivers running across the, the, the track, and that's why Grosjean aquaplaned effectively. The the problem that you have is, was the track actually ready when that accident happened? Well, other drivers were making it work, so you can argue that it was. But 
you know, was it improving at that stage? Could we have waited a couple more minutes um, for, for the session to get underway? And instead, we end up with nearly, a, was it a two-hour delay in the end? Yeah, I think it was actually two-plus. And uh, it, it was a staggeringly, as someone who sat through and watched the entire thing live, it was staggeringly dull to sit through, mm. with the brief exception of when uh, Valtteri Botas and Hamilton played video games together. And of course, anything that had to do with Ricardo was always fun. I mean, yeah, I mean, going back to the 15 minute schedule that you mentioned, um, the, I think there's several points to bring about for that. We remember that there's only one safety car driver at the event. So we've got Bernd Maylander driving the safety car, which is a Mercedes SLS, um, I believe. And anybody that's driven a track car can appreciate the difficulty you have driving on the pure limit in the rain. I've owned track cars. I've driven on the track. And as soon as the rain comes out, it is an extremely difficult place to be, especially when you're not got downforce. You know, he's driving around in a road car effectively. Um, yes, he might have some stickier tyres, but effectively he's still a road car. Um, so I struggle to understand where people think that there's there's another option. Do you have a, a, a formula car and send a formula car out? Something like a, a, I don't know, a downgraded GP2 car, last year's GP2 car. But you struggle with the same problems that an F1 car does then. You've got to stay within tyre temperature operation. So you need a driver that understands those requirements as well. Um, and going back to the, the, the SLS safety car, the other problem I've always had with lapping around a circuit at full tilt is you run out of fuel. You know, I could do a 20-minute session in my supercharged um, 1.6 car, um, and I'd be I'd have done a tank 60 liters in 20 minutes. So you can't just keep constantly having the safety car go around. It needs to be filled up. So I think that's part of the reason why. And from a comfort level for the the for Burned was also that he needs a break. Can't just keep constantly pounding the laps in. Um, yeah, 15 minutes might have been a problem in terms of. The, the the public watching the event and obviously the people that are getting drowned at Monza but I've been in Monza when it when it's wet and there isn't a problem with it because the Tafosi are brilliant um when when the rain's coming down I've been in the stands with them and uh it's a fantastic atmosphere even when it's raining well so what about the the tarmac then? I, I remember Alonso had complained and said it wasn't up to specification. But if my reading of the regulations, uh, if I remember it correctly, they're supposed to inspect all of that. Is there an issue there or is this just it was new tarmac and Alonso was in a uh, foul mood that day? I, I would probably say he's in a Honda mood. That, that's that's just the cloud that hangs over Alonso at the moment is I'm in a Honda mood and I'm angry with everything. Um, now Charlie has to do a track inspection, um, especially when there's changes made like this. So think back to when um, Parabolica was changed. I think it was two seasons ago. Now he would have had to inspected that six, I think it's six weeks prior to the event to make sure um, that everything has, has been done correctly and there's also inspections going on prior to that, but there's there's a last ditch effort at six. I think it's six weeks prior to to an event taking place, and that gives them obviously then some some wiggle room to change something. So yeah, 
if Alonso is saying it's not up to specification, then fair enough. But it, it should have been inspected prior to the event. Right. That, that's what I thought, too. I felt like it was just he was unhappy. And, and this is always the case with a new tarmac of any kind, because the oil keeps the moisture from doing what it's used to doing. And it just sits up on top and takes forever to get rid of. Yeah, I saw some arguments as well about the the poor drainage. But at the end of the day, you know, the drainage hasn't been an issue on that straight in the past, or not that I can recollect. So the problem is inherent to the tarmac, and the, the it's obviously been been laid quite recently. Um, so yeah, it's and not used uh, a great deal. So yeah, you're going to have these issues. But at the end of the day, you can't keep running around on the same tarmac for 50 years. Um, we, we need something uh, track improvements. There has to be evolution. And unfortunately, it was a wet weekend. If it hadn't been a wet weekend, would anybody have noticed that new tarmac? Probably not. No, and everyone was delighted that qualifying was wet because it was much more exciting when it finally got underway than the dry qualifying would have been, I think, pretty much a snooze fest, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I know you're a fan, but I was actually cheering Ocon on um, because I really wanted him to to, to outperform um, his position. Um, I, I feel that in recent weeks, he's took a lot of stick for the situation with Perez um and yeah i just really wanted him to do well and that position that he finished in was was a stellar performance along with lance stroll um but lance is getting a step up elsewhere um it helps when you do a lot of testing outside of grand prix weekends that nobody else gets access to yeah it doesn't hurt at all and i will say that just based on watching the lap times i feel like ocon put that car about one position higher than it had any right to be in the race and is certainly in qualifying, it was just like his lap was just amazing. It was the only thing that touched it from my point of view would be Lewis lap, which was was which was its own kind of brilliance. I thought. Yeah, I'd ha- I'd have to totally agree. Um, he seems to be out driving the the car, which is a fantastic quality to have in a in a young driver. Um, and Force India are then obviously put in a, a very difficult position because they've got the aging Sergio Perez, who's the de facto number one driver. Um, being put under pressure by the young upstart and haven't we been in this position before a few years ago at McLaren when a certain Lewis Hamilton came along yeah and you know what else is really brilliant about Ocon that I bet a lot of people who don't know is he uh, like Hamilton is thoroughly middle class his parents actually I believe sold their house to fund his junior driving career and they just lived out of a caravan at the different racetracks so he again is someone who comes from not the level economically you would expect a driver of this caliber to come from. He's really had to earn it all the way along. And uh, this just makes me even happier to see him doing well. Although I would say that if he's super clever, he would be sneaking into Perez's side of the garage late at night and figuring out how he makes the tires last that long. Because if there's an edge that Perez has right now, I think he does do a better job with the tires over the course of a race. And that's a lot of times why you see him finishing ahead of Ocon. Yeah, and that's been a trait of Perez for for a number of years. Throughout the Pirelli era, uh, realistically, uh, when he was at Sauber, he used to have an astonishing feel for the way in which the the, the tyres operated. Um, And the the problem that Perez faces is that he has a bit of stigma around him because of the McLaren year. 
uh, he just went there too soon, unfortunately, um, and, and obviously burned a, a few bridges down at Ferrari as well, which didn't do him any favours in the, the, the tail end of his career. So he's kind of stalled and he's got no real moving manoeuvres to, to, to pull off now, which he, which will be frustrating. And I can see now why there's that battle between him and Ocon, who is obviously a Mercedes junior. Yeah, and, and I think a clear tip to go to a top team in the, in the next couple, he and Signs, I think, are the two that probably most people are talking about. But there's not a top team to go to right now. Yeah, and this is the problem, again, by the, the, the mere fact that we're in this situation where there's three teams that can fight for, for positions at, at the front of the grid. And Red Bull are really trailing that. And they've got no positions to, to for drivers to go into. Because at the end of the day, we've, we've got Daniel Ricciardo, who's in the, the the prime of his career against the you know Max Verstappen who is the future of the sport um and it does beg the question should we have three car teams um because that is one way of dealing with some of the economic issues that we we have in formula 1 in my opinion as well yeah well and 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 from that it's going to be clear that we're not going to get this solved till we start to hear rumors about what's really coming in 2020 and 2021 you're going to need more teams for the drivers. You're going to need more races for the sponsors and just for the eyeballs, quite frankly. And how you're going to get that done without breaking the back of what's already there is a problem that, A, I'm glad I don't have to solve, and B, we're going to have a great deal of fun speculating endlessly about over the next couple of years. But I think perhaps we should save that for another show. Most definitely. All right, Mr. Summers, where can we find you? What are you working on? What should we be paying attention to? Well, the, the usually the best place to find me is on Twitter because I do update that quite regularly with all the, the bits and pieces that I do. So I'm SummersF1 on Twitter. Um, obviously, I work at motorsport.com with the legend that is Giorgio Piola. Um, and I do have my own blog, although it's not updated as much as it should be, which is summersf1.co.uk. Excellent. And as for me, well, I'm Matt Trumpets. You can find me at MattPT55 on the internet. Go check out MissedApex.com for all the latest and greatest podcasts, including one that's recording right now with Joe Saywood. Remember, chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Trumpets Time. All right, there you go. Done. Perfect. Well, that was that was certainly an entertainment. Yep. I'm afraid you're going to hear all sorts of like um, honking and motorcycles in the background because my noise gate is down. But oh well. Because uh, we were talking about, I wanted to know, and now I'm going to ask you this question, just yep. because I can. Um, talking about it being too late for the design to move on, to to be implemented. Is that, is that really going to be down to the packaging of the transmission as much as anything else? And not just the transmission. We're talking about the installation of the power unit and the cooling attributes that are required. Um, this is all part of what I think should be changed in 2021 as well in terms of I have a big problem with not being able to have adjustable aero. Um, imagine if you had the ability to be able to close off a side pod or close off uh, the front brake duct or the rear brake duct or, or something along those lines from an efficiency point of view in terms of aero. Um, but yeah, that look at what Sauber have had to go through this season. They, they knew the power unit from last year 
the Ferrari power unit, and they still didn't get it right. And they've still bought a huge amount of cooling changes to the car um, around just before Silverstone, Austria maybe, um, to rectify the problems that they'd created themselves. And you just think, well, you knew that power unit inside out last year. How did you make those mistakes? Um, Is that a resource problem? Or is it just that you made a mistake? I don't know. But um, going back to McLaren and Renault and Honda, um, I'd be more fearful if I was McLaren because of the way that Pedromo follows Nui's philosophies in terms of wanting everything narrowed. Um, and yeah, cooling is going to be the main issue. I don't think the gearbox is a massive issue. It's a long lead time item, and they need to make sure that it operates how it should. Um, but McLaren have been building gearboxes for 30, 40 years. If they can't do it now, then they shouldn't be doing it, should they? Yeah, well, this is why I was thinking that the Honda to Toro Rosso uh, switch wouldn't be so bad because Prodromo basically follows a new philosophy. And even though I know Key is his own man, I would assume that Renault aerodynamically are not that far off of where Nui has gone, but that going the other way, the Renault might not fit as well in in the Honda because it seems like Prodromo almost went further than Nui went, but maybe not. I don't know. This is just guessing. Well, the, the, the thing that you've got as well is, is that this, the last four cars haven't been Nui's. So you've also got a situation where you're following a trend that Nui started without Prodromo, who, is, who was his second lieutenant. So you've got Dan Fallows trying to follow Prodromo, who's followed Nui. So you've ended up with perhaps a baggy car, let's say, in comparison to what Nui would have done. And that's why you're now seeing a lot of changes to the Red Bull now that Adrian's been reactivated. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Padromo is definitely of the same ilk of as Nui, um, especially in terms of what they tried to do with the size zero, because that was bonkers. You know, you're putting in a brand new power unit that hasn't turned a wheel yet. Oh, it's just like what Red Bull did with the RB10. You know, they had to they had to cut bodywork away at testing to make the thing work because it was just literally setting fire to the car. Um, so, yeah, it's the same problem that McLaren will have the same problem that Red Bull had with the RB10 is what I would imagine, unless they're conservative. And I don't think Padrona, Padromo knows how to be conservative. No, I wouldn't think so after watching the last couple of years. But, you know, I can't argue with the results either from a chassis point of view. They seem to be doing a pretty good job. Yeah. They're, they're, they're essentially the same car, though. You you strip back the paint on the on the, those two cars, and they're almost an identical chassis. Um, yes, they've got nuance or differences, but from an overview, holistically, they are very much the same philosophy. Um, maybe not so much this year, but the previous couple of cars were certainly, you know, in the same lineage um, from a design and aero philosophy side of things. Mm. Yeah. Well, it'll be fascinating to see. I can't I can't wait to see what the final decision is. I really what I really hope plays out and I know this is really bad, but I really hope it does happen. And I really hope that Toro Rosso and Honda own McLaren next season. Yeah, that just for the just for the kicks of it for, for Alonso as well, because he will go bonkers. He will go bonkers. 
Yeah, well, and it will be, once again, as you so aptly point out, a situation entirely of his own making. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's forced the hand that feeds him, basically. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was talking to my other friend, Taub, last night about this sort of stuff as well. Um, and, and I said to him, I, I, the only other option that McLaren have got is to take a sabbatical and go and race in IndyCar for a year with Andretti and put a P1 out in WAC and, and go that route. I mean, I can't see them actually doing it, but it would be a way of transitioning to and forcing the hand of the sport to help them to get them what they need in terms of equipment. But I can't see that happening, but it's, you know, it's another possibility. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that was an interesting uh, insight that, that I think we gleaned from Renault is that they were like, look, we can't afford three, three and we're maxed out. Look at what's happening. Yeah. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're going to be desperate enough to keep all our engines from blowing up next year. And, that's with them. They walked back a big Urs update, if I'm remembering. And yeah, geez, man, oof, oof. You know, so that's all teams. to do with the Infinity project, though, as well, isn't it? That yeah. Urs walk back, um, because I believe Infinity got something not quite right. Yeah, but that's all to do with it with Red Bull again as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, and and round and round and round we go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was about the time that Mario walked away again from Renault. Mm-hmm. He was at because he was he was working with Renault, and he decided to walk away. And I think it was over the the conceptual way in which that the ERS and the ICE work together. Um, I think it's interesting that he's now working with Honda, and they've made such strides so quickly. You know that 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 to me just proves that the guys at Ilian know what they're doing. Yep. Yep, and that was, I mean, but those were the rumors we heard about that little uh, one-cylinder model that he the, did, too. The, yeah, the, the monocylinder, yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's interesting times in Formula One. Most definitely, All but right. isn't it always? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed it is. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.